Post Reports is sponsored by the Asset Podcast, produced by the Center for American Progress Action Fund, District Productive, and Protect the Investigation. The Asset tells the story of Donald Trump and Russia. It's about the role of a hostile foreign government in the election of the President of the United States. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleve Rutzen with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, June 4th. Today, why a sporting goods store is selling fewer guns, the future of the special relationship with Britain, and how one contestant changed Jeopardy forever. Our CFO at that point said, well, we should take a look at the financial ramifications. And I said, we should, but I don't really care. This is what we're going to do. So Ed Stack is the CEO of Dick's Sporting Goods. Particularly after Parkland, he learned that the Parkland shooter actually bought a shotgun from a Dick's store. It wasn't the gun that was used in the shooting, but it was one that he had bought a couple of months beforehand. Business reporter Rachel Siegel recently went to Pittsburgh to the headquarters of Dick's Sporting Goods. Dick's sells stuff like athletic apparel, sports equipment, outdoor gear, and also firearms. And Rachel wanted to understand why the CEO of this company would make this kind of choice. After Parkland, he overhauled Dick's gun sales policies. A number of people have said to me, this had to be a really hard decision. And honestly, it was not. He took all assault-style weapons out of stores. He raised the minimum age to buy a gun to 21. He said that they would never sell bump stocks or high-capacity magazines. We knew there'd be a lot of blowback. From the NRA, Republican lawmakers, about 60 employees actually quit over the decision. And same-store revenue went down by 3.1% that year. Despite this, the board members of Dix backed their CEO. You know, it was a unanimous vote of our board. Okay. It was a unanimous consensus on our uh, uh, management team that this is what we should do. And if we keep this conversation going, eventually something is going to change. The people who have criticized this decision from Ed Stack, what are their criticisms? Some of them say that Ed Stack is infringing on Second Amendment rights. They say that it's not his position to limit who is entitled to buy a gun and who isn't. But Ed Stack also met with them directly. He went to Capitol Hill and met with Republicans and Democrats in the House and Senate and drilled down on inconsistencies and holes in federal gun legislation. He's not only concerned about products on his shelves, but also laws that allow people to buy guns or don't. And he told me point blank that... Democrats were ready to act on gun reform and that Republicans really had no interest in doing anything. The Democrats said, we need to change this. We need reform. And the Republicans, you know, you could tell that nothing was going to happen. Ted Cruz has criticized exporting goods. He said that based on uh, Dick's decisions to take guns off of shelves, that the company is appropriately named. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Like calling him a... Essentially, right, the name of his company. And customers have boycotted, people have quit, but that hasn't deterred him, even though there's actually been a pretty steep decline in sales because of this backlash. The right decisions are always easy decisions. There may be repercussions from them, but they're not hard decisions to make, and this was not a hard decision to make. 
And the fact that Dix isn't selling some of these guns, does that actually make it more difficult for an average person in America to buy a gun? So it's hard to say. We couldn't get exact figures on their gun sales specifically set apart from the rest of their merchandise. And obviously, there are a lot of ways for Americans to buy guns in this country. I think the way that Ed Stack is approaching it is that he has a certain vantage point as the head of his company to do something about that. And whether or not that prevents people everywhere from being able to buy guns is almost sort of a separate question because this is what he feels like is within his control. And a year later, what happened with our sales we knew was going to happen. If somebody said, you can have a do-over here, we do it exactly the same way. Has he heard people accusing him of using this as basically a PR move, like a, a way to just get headlines for his store? So interestingly, he used that same phrasing to actually describe a supplier that cut ties with Dick's after their Parkland policy changes. So the gunmaker Mossberg, a pretty big gunmaker, said that after Dick's hired gun reform lobbyists a couple of weeks after Parkland, that they weren't going to sell to the company directly. But the way Ed Stack put it to me was that they didn't keep their own distributors from working with Dick's. So essentially, there were still ways to get guns into these stores. Ed Stack called that a PR move and actually said that it was a cowardly statement, that this was something that Mossberg had decided to do. What else is Dick Sporting Goods and Ed Stack doing related to gun reform? So after the Parkland decision, most recently this past March, the company announced that it was taking all guns out of 125 stores. Hmm. And the reason that they came to that decision was because last year they tested taking all guns out of about 10 stores and filling that empty space with merchandise that was more geared towards those markets. And they actually found that those stores did better than the rest of the company did that was suffering from these lagging sales. This is almost a blessing in disguise. We knew that the gun business was going to continue, the the firearms business, the hunting business was going to continue to be difficult because of our decision. So we said, all right, let's try to get ahead of this. Let's take Hunt out of 10 stores Mm -hmm. and see what happens. So the company decided to take all guns out of 125 stores. And Ed Stack told me that they're open to considering whether they'll add stores to that roster. But for now, that's their most recent change. The fact that you have this big name sported goods store that's making this pretty significant decision to to take guns out of their stores, will that have any effect on lawmakers and how lawmakers look at this? So Ed Stack feels that there hasn't been any momentum from these meetings that he's had and the urgency that he's tried to approach this issue with so far. Ed Stack signed a letter with some other CEOs along with Everytown for Gun Safety urging for a bipartisan background check bill that actually passed the House earlier this year. But whether Dick's overhauling its policies have shaken up radical change on Capitol Hill, he's frustrated that that hasn't happened. The two sides of the aisle needed to come together with the intent to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. And neither side came with the intent to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. They just continued to talk to their bases. And in some ways, that's why I find his decision with regards to to what Dix is going to be selling, why that's so interesting, because it seems like in the absence of any federal legislation on gun reform or gun control, that you have these business leaders who are starting to step in and say, well, maybe we can have some kind of effect on Americans' access to 
these types of guns. Even on issues apart from guns, I think CEOs are approaching their positions of power as being able to affect some sort of influence, especially when these companies depend on customer support. Recently, my colleague Jay Green reported that Salesforce, the software giant, instituted a new policy barring its retail customers from using its technology to sell semi-automatic weapons and some other firearms. Do you think when Ed Stack looks at stuff like that, that he's thinking that the fact that I'm doing this, that Dick's Sporting Goods is doing this, will encourage other businesses to take actions and put in place policies on what they sell that could be somewhat controversial? Yes, and I think that his hope especially is that companies will act when lawmakers do not. And I think that he is looking for ways to move the ball forward on this issue, especially if there isn't any more momentum from the lawmakers who have given him resistance so far. The thing that surprised me the most Mm -hmm. is the inaction of Congress. With all the shootings that happened in in a relatively short period of time, Orlando, all the things that we talked about, that all of these things happened and Congress did nothing. That they couldn't come together to find a solution to this problem. Rachel Siegel is a business reporter for The Post. This week, President Trump arrived in London at the peak of a delicate political moment. After dining with the British royal family on Monday. Your Majesty, Melania and I are profoundly honored to be your guests for this historic state visit. Trump held a press conference the next day with Prime Minister Theresa May. Prime Minister May, it's been a true honor. Last month, after she failed to reach a Brexit deal, May announced that she was resigning. She says that she'll step down at the end of this week. I have greatly enjoyed working with you. You are a tremendous professional and a person that loves your country dearly. Thank you very much. Really an honor. There's a real dichotomy here between the very, very stuffy, formal pomp and circumstance of the royal visit, the royal tributes, and, and and the giant state banquet. Anne Guerin is a White House reporter for The Post, and she's traveling with President Trump on his visit to the UK. I mean, it was a real free-for-all today on on the streets outside where uh, Trump and and British Prime Minister May were meeting. Including the famous Trump baby balloon and lots of tooting of horns and other protests. So this visit is happening at a very precarious time for the UK, right? Theresa May is on her way out the door, and Brexit is still very much an open question. And then you have President Trump coming in to wade into all of this. What did he say at this press conference about the fact that Theresa May is leaving and about the future of of British leadership? He could have gone a lot 
further in cheerleading for Brexit than he did. He was relatively restrained, but he said very clearly that uh, he thinks it should happen. I would say, yeah, I would think that it will happen and it probably should happen. This is a great, great country and it wants its own identity. It wants to have its own borders. It wants to run its own affairs. This is a very, very special place and I think it deserves a special place. He was also asked about potential new leaders to replace May. He did wade in maybe knee-deep into the conservative leadership question. But in general, he was on quite good behavior and didn't you know, say anything untoward about any of the potential candidates to replace her. But even so, I mean, I know that this is pretty tame by President Trump standards, but the fact that he's willing to wade in on these things to at least you know, talk about some of the potential people who could be replacing Theresa May, and then also talking about his desire to see Brexit happen and and be willing to say his opinion on that. And he mentioned that he plans to support the U.K. after Brexit happens. What is his plan for that? Well, his best response to the question of, you know, why are you wading into somebody else's politics actually came before uh, he came on the trip at all. And he told reporters at the White House as he was leaving, well, people keep asking me about it. Like, <laughs> if you don't want to know what I think, don't ask me. <laughs> um, of course, other leaders would decline to take the bait, right? They would they would say, well, that really isn't a matter for me. I'm sure, you know, the U.S.-U.K. relationship will, will go on and the United States will work with whoever Britain chooses, blah, 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 right? I mean, <laughs> and he doesn't do that. As far as what he said about what comes after, I think he really was trying to turn the page here and focus on the day after, which for him is negotiating a separate trade deal between the United States and the United Kingdom. I think we're going to have a great trade deal, yes. I think we're going to have a great and very comprehensive trade deal. You know, he talked about what he says could be a tremendous trade deal and to focus on making that new deal, which isn't possible until after Britain leaves the European Union. So in some ways, he's presenting an incentive for the UK to push forward with this because he says that once once Brexit is handled, then a very lucrative partnership with the US can be negotiated. Yes, to the extent that, that it's his to do, he's sort of offering a, an incentive here. Uh, just get on with it then and then we can can do this deal. Uh, And part of his trip was structured around making that argument. Uh, Earlier today, there was a business roundtable with Treasury Secretary uh, Mnuchin and a a number of both U.S. and British business executives and, and corporate leaders. So on the one hand, you have President Trump kind of recommitting to his relationship with the U.K., promising that he plans to support them after Brexit is done. And trying to strengthen his relationships going into that. At the same time, he is insulting the mayor of London. What do you think this visit says about the state of the U.S.'s relationship with Great Britain? This really is a very big and important alliance. And I think people should act positively toward it because it means so much for both countries. It means so much. And it's been so good. Certainly, it is much more than it, than it isn't the case that the United States and the UK have a very strong relationship that in many ways is independent of the leaders and, and independent of Trump. I think we saw Trump today making a real point of talking about the relationship and talking about the countries rather than talking about his personal stake in the matter. 
you know, and Trump talked about ways that the United States and, and Britain are important to one another, in, including uh, in, in trade and business. But after uh, well more than two years of, of, of Trump's presidency, the, the relationship is, is on different footing. Anne Guerin is a White House reporter for The Post. At Tuesday's press conference, President Trump also continued to threaten tariffs on trade with Mexico. But we haven't really started yet. No, this will take effect next week. Some Republicans in Congress are discussing the possibility of voting to block those tariffs. On Tuesday, Trump said that he thinks that's a foolish idea. And what do you think of Republicans who say that they may take action to block you imposing those tariffs? I don't think they will do that. I think if they do, it's foolish. Uh, There's nothing more important than borders. Post Reports is sponsored by the Asset Podcast, produced by the Center for American Progress Action Fund, District Productive, and Protect the Investigation. The Asset tells the story of Donald Trump and Russia. It's about the role of a hostile foreign government in the election of the President of the United States. And now, one more thing. Entertainment reporter Emily Yar on why Monday's episode of Jeopardy! marked the end of an era. James Holzhauer is one of the most exciting Jeopardy! contestants in the history of the show. He started his run in early April, and people would kind of call him like a Jeopardy! robot. James. Was the Vietnam War? That's it. Musicals 8? Basically, because back in 2004, Ken Jennings won more than $2.5 million over 74 games, and James Holzhauer won $2.4 million over 33 games. James. What is one flew over the cuckoo's nest? Correct. So there was a lot of anticipation for this episode because James was about $59,000 away from breaking Ken Jennings' record, which seemed totally doable because his average was about $77,000 per game. So it started out pretty normal. James was ahead. And then in the second round, this woman, this other contestant, Emma Botcher, who's a librarian from Chicago, she won both daily doubles. You have enough money to catch and pass James. You know, I think I got to make it a true daily double. All right. And she maintained a pretty consistently through the second round. So by the time they got to final Jeopardy!, she was ahead by a few thousand dollars. Over to James. Now he had 23400 and his response was correct. His wager. $1,399. And even Alex Trebek made a comment about it. A modest one for the first time. That takes him to 24799 And in a shocking twist, James lost the game just as he was about to break the record. So, Emma, it's up to you. If you came up with a correct response, you're going to be the new Jeopardy! champion. Did you? You did. What did you wager? Oh, gosh, 20000 What a payday. 46801 Immediately, people on social media started to throw out conspiracy theories that maybe James had intended to lose. 
he had tweeted a couple of days before that they promised his daughter a big party when he lost. So now she was really sad every time he won because <laughs> she just wanted this party. But I, I mean, that was a joke. Like he obviously I think still wanted to win. But those were some of the theories floating around just because it was so unusual for him to bet such a low amount. And everyone was just stunned to see him lose a game at all. <laughs> Oh, and I've been hearing from lots of Jeopardy fans who say that they've been really enjoying seeing Alex Trebek every night and how much he's enjoying James Holzhauer's streak in light of his announcement of his pancreatic cancer diagnosis. It seems that he actually got some positive health news. He said recently that he is near remission. Not too many people want to play against James, but I do want you to express my thanks to your beautiful little daughter, uh, Natasha for uh, having made this get well card for me. That that was very sweet of her. Thank you. Emily Yar is an entertainment reporter for The Post. that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Class is in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.